This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to the party room for 2021. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New, New Year, Pick. I know it's February, so it's hardly new, but welcome back to the party room. I must say, PK, I haven't, haven't seen you for months. I, I, how was your summer? I, I, like many, had a very COVID summer. Yeah, a very COVID summer is exactly right. It just showed what a false concept it was that 2020 would end and then we would wake up in 2021 renewed. Look, I've got to put it this way, Fran. New Year's Eve, you know, I'm, I'm getting on. I've got kids. It's never a wild night for me, but I like to do something special. Mm-hmm. But it was spent in isolation in my bed waiting for my COVID results <laughs> because I visited a family in regional New South Wales in a green zone with all of the right documentation and went through all the right procedures. Of course, I'm a law-abiding citizen and believe in controlling this virus after living through that hideous second lockdown in, in Melbourne which was so hard for us all, um, but so important that we got rid of this thing, yeah, had to make it to the border <laughs> so I that I get home. I had a border run too. I know I to, you did. Yours was, tell me about yours. I had to rush to the ACT border because I woke up on the Saturday morning, 7.30 or something, and my partner yells, quick, they're closing the border at noon. So we absolutely <laughs> flew around the house and hit the highway and got there with 14 minutes to spare and then spent 11 days in ISO. And uh, Anyway, like a lot of people, things very disrupted. But 2021, PK, that's the start of it, but might not be hopefully as wild and as challenging as 2020. Politically, though, it's already shaping up to be a pretty contested year, isn't it? Oh, yes. (laughs) Big time. Uh, Look... Let's just set the scene, right? Parliament's back this week. We're back because Parliament's back and the political year has started proper, which always is the case sort of after Australia Day, after January the 26th is the political year starting proper. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, gave a speech on Monday that was notable, I think, for its its lack of big policy ideas. But if you looked at the substance of what he was telling us, it sounded to me like kind of an election year pitch. It was all about sort of trying to park as much as he could the ideological fights, although I don't think they're going anywhere, if, and we'll get to that. Labor mm. very much wants industrial relations to be the centrepiece of their campaign. But It was all about, you know, the recovery, managing COVID, getting the vaccination done by the end of the year and really focusing on on that. And I think that's wise, actually, politically, because that's where he's had political success, managing the virus well, providing the right economic stimulus to keep the economy afloat. That's where the gains have been made. And you saw a very pragmatic Prime Minister, I thought, in that speech. Yeah, I mean, wise for sure, but also essential. I mean, of course, our government has to make their priority the vaccine rollouts, the biggest logistical exercise in our history, as the Prime Minister keeps telling us, and also keeping the sort of economic recovery on track. That, That 
really goes without saying, and there would be 100% support for the government getting that right. But should there be a bigger vision? And I thought the PM, um, I don't know what you thought, PK, but he got quite prickly when asked about this and the lack of ambition on his reform agenda. And he rolled out, you know, his government's plans for tax cuts, for instance, which are already uh, being legislated, or changes to uni fees and skills already in place. The government does have a fairly modest IR reform package, which he pointed to, though, you know, that's already causing him grief. There is a lot more focus on education skills needed, in my view, and a lot more investment. But, you know, I I suppose the bigger question that the population perhaps should be asking is, is the pandemic an excuse to not progress, for instance, major, major policy issues like a National Integrity Commission, which we've been waiting for for a long time? Or what about the changes on religious freedom, which we were going to get last year? These are two issues sidelined behind the pandemic and, you know, really... You'd have to think it's time, wouldn't you? Look, on, on, on the Integrity Commission, I think there is a sense of urgency uh, and I think transparency in politics and policy and institutions is really important. Uh, I think, you know, something like religious freedom, yeah, sure, the government said it wanted to do something, but I think it's been a convenient excuse. Uh, I don't know if there's a sense of urgency. I don't know if people are being uh, oppressed around the country and their religious freedoms are really being repressed. I haven't seen any evidence of that. No, but it's a big piece of work the government committed itself to, did, and then has run away from, it seems to me. Yeah, uh, conveniently, I think, under the cover of the pandemic, because yeah. I think there was not really a lot of uh, enthusiasm reason for having... Reason for it. Yeah, reason yeah, and true, enthusiasm perhaps. for having that fight internally. Let's not forget, inside the coalition, there was not unity on how to go on forward on this. So it's, it's a fight that the Prime Minister, I think, rightly cannot be bothered having. I think yeah. rightly, right? Something, Which goes to your ideology issue again and his pragmatism. Yeah, and I've had a few people criticise me, because I've said this around the place, saying, oh, are you saying he's not ideological. He's a centre-right Prime Minister, right? Like, of course he's is a right-leaning Prime Minister. That's not what I'm saying, or that he doesn't, you know, care about these some of these right-wing issues. I just think he's a he's a pragmatist. It goes to the advertising man that Labor tries to caricature him for. That is also a pragmatist, right? That's someone who just wants to sell popular stuff. And at the moment, managing the economy and a recovery and suppressing COVID. I mean, another example before we get into a big ticket item, which is climate, but just quickly, is the way he's gotten behind quick, sharp lockdowns, right? Perth had one. We're in the middle of one. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. It'll be over probably very soon. And so did Adelaide. And he got behind them. You know, that said something about pragmatism too, right? And also realising how popular it's been to get rid of this virus, not just kind of live with it, but actually try to just smash it. And that, again, goes to the way he pivots, I think. And talking of pivoting, I mean, there is one of the big ticket items, of course, not just for this year for Australia, for the but for the world is climate policy. And the Prime Minister, who remember once when he was not Prime Minister, I think he was Treasurer at the time, the man who brought the lump of coal into the Parliament, he did at this speech earlier in the week hint at some movement on climate policy. We're seeking to get to net zero. Um, We'd preferably like to see that happen by 2050, as I've said. Could happen sooner with significant technological change. But I'd say if there isn't the technological change, then... It's just a bit of paper. He had an opportunity at the press club to make a commitment and he missed it. His position on net zero emissions has not changed. If he wants to commit to net zero emissions, he should just say so. Scott Morrison and the shadow treasurer Jim Chalmers there. Now, of course, 
We know why the Prime Minister still has to be very careful on this issue. Well, some people will be listening and think he shouldn't have to be careful, but politically he has to because it's incredibly historically vexed everywhere, but also very much in his political party, in in the coalition, also with the Nationals. And the Nationals in particular are still strong advocates for the, you know, the future of the coal and the coal-fired power industry, which gives him a headache. So it seems to me that he does want to go there. That was a stronger indication that he wants to do something. And we know why. Lots of reasons. That's where the world is going. Joe Biden is now the president in the United States. The world order is shifting on this issue. But how does he bring them with him? And does he have the authority? I think he has more authority than I've seen any other prime minister have since John Howard in the coalition. But that doesn't mean he necessarily has the authority to kind of pull into line people like, and we'll talk about him on another level in a moment, Craig Kelly in the Mm -hmm. Liberal Party or Barnaby Joyce in the Nationals. Yes, they're just some renegades. Can Can he manage it? I think ultimately he can if he stands firm, but it doesn't mean it's not a political headache for him. Yeah, we actually, you know, we keep talking using this word pragmatic. We haven't actually seen him exert his authority too much because he hasn't pushed too hard on these issues yet. So it's, you know, one theory is that he's sort of just edging forward and softening everybody up on this zero net zero emissions by 2050 and then he'll get over the line in time for the election. But in terms of his authority, it's not been his style so far to test it, perhaps because he saw what happened to Malcolm Turnbull. You know, under normal circumstances, PK, climate and climate policy has been a a positive for Labor. They've had an edge in it. They thought they had an edge in it going to the last election, though in the end uh, they they really mishandled it and it blew up on them a bit and was one of the reasons why I think they did so poorly in Queensland. But we've got you know, very obvious front and centre divisions in Labor at the moment over climate policy. And I I think this has really caught a lot of people by surprise. Labor has committed to net zero emissions by 2050. So they still think they've got an edge over Scott Morrison there. But they're moving away from their 2030 target. uh, And that's been something fixed in stone for Labor for some years. But now it looks like it's gone. Um, The party seems to be divided by into those who think uh, a midterm target will scare off voters in electorates where coal is still a major employer and those who think, look, if Labor abandons uh, ambitious climate policy, then it can kiss goodbye to any advantage it might have in more inner city electorates. Don't forget, they're the electorates of Anthony Albanese, for instance, Mm -hmm. and Tanya Plibersek and others. So we saw a reshuffle from Anthony Albanese around this. He's changed Mark Butler out of climate policy, who's been there a long time. And he's in the left. And he's in the left. And this was a demand from the right that they get rid of Mark Butler because they see him as, you know, um, inflexible and a symbol in in those particularly regional Queensland electorates that Labor's got the wrong message. So Anthony Albanese has responded to that. He put Chris Bowen in there. Um, and that's also part of the fact that this issue is really creating some wobbles for Anthony Albanese's leadership because division is death, we know that, disunity is death in a a political party and Anthony Albanese's um, leadership is under a bit of stress. I think that's very clear. Oh, absolutely. It's under stress. Can we tell you that, you know, he's imminently going to be rolled as Labor leader? We cannot. But um, the, the rumblings are correct. There is concern about whether he is capable of taking Labor to an election 
victory, which of course <laughs> you'd expect them to want, being a political party. Uh, but but whether they are you know planning and prepared to act, it's, I don't think it's got to that stage yet. But you know things can move really quickly, Fran. I mean, there's this report, of course in the Australian newspaper by Peter Van Onselen about, you know, this Labor MPs known as the Otis Group that they named themselves, aren't they um, imaginative, um, meeting <laughs> and, and voicing, you know, their frustration. It's all very, it's all very, very Canberra, you know, the Wednesday nights. They go to dinner, they found themselves yeah, in a private room, I mean, room that whinging is what about happens the anyway, right? They yeah. all go out, they get in their little groupings of friendships and they all go to certain restaurants because Wednesday night's the night in a sitting week where they knock off early from the parliament. So that's a well-worn tradition. So why are we seeing it differently or, or particularly dangerously for Anthony Albanese with this group this time? Well, because it's it's getting real, right? Because an election could happen this year because of the chattering, kind of the tone of the chattering is, a, is, is at a higher level. We've seen the reactivity of Anthony Albanese. So when, when he did that reshuffle, I mean, that was... That was about sandbagging his leadership. That was mm. about uh, ad- addressing these issues. So we know it's real. Um, but as I say, you know, is he imminently about to get rolled? No, because you know, there's cost-benefit analysis with anything. I mean, they, they, there's not a sort of clean transaction when you roll a leader, and they all know that. Uh, what are the alternatives as well? You know, there's not some sort of clear uh, alternative. I don't know. There's not kind of is there a is there a hawkey there waiting? I can't see one. Um, so yeah, those issues matter too. But either way, uh, I think the political conditions are pretty good for the prime minister, aren't they? You know, the opposition in a, in its own kind of war or or at least argument. I won't war over steps that I think, but but argument around climate change and leadership. The PM's job, therefore, has to, you know is just kind of managing, 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 oh, yeah. and we know it's good for incumbents. Oh, and we know the electorate more broadly is sick of this. It hates infighting, particularly at the time of a pandemic. You would think most Australians would think, could you just get on focusing on what needs to be done and forget fighting over the spoils of of office, if you like. I think you know what's. Um, uh, perhaps what's a little bit more dangerous about this grouping, this Otis group, is who was at the Wild Duck restaurant in, in Canberra, in Kingston and Canberra, because there was Bill Shorten, former leader, of course, who gave a speech last week that was very pointed, seemed to be quite a pointed criticism, I think, of policy development under Anthony Albanese. There was Joel Fitzgibbon, who, you know, as many times as you like, will say he thinks Anthony Albanese needs to change certain things and certain policies if he wants to get re-elected. Uh, there was Don Farrell, who's a you know factional power broker. Some of these people have been in and around leadership changes in the past, in the not-too-distant past, so that's what sort of raises people's antenna, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. One thing I think, though, as a political analyst that's watched these events for a long time is Labor has to be very careful not to fight last election. yeah at the next election. And I feel like that group and their obsession with this kind of uh, the the sort of symbolism of coal, because it's become very Mm. symbolic too, uh, that's not to say you shouldn't um, deal, in fact, they must, with regional concerns around jobs because they're real and the pandemic's made it even more real. We know that. I mean, you know, people are really struggling. Mm. Two million people are without work or not enough work. This is a big deal. But you can't keep fighting the last election at the next election. Joe Biden has won the presidency in the US. The world has shifted. The pandemic has shifted the dynamics. Labor would be smart to actually engage with what's happening in the here and now.
which is, to be fair, what Anthony Albanese is trying to do in that first speech he gave as leader. It was all about that, talking about how to reposition regional communities into the new technology uh, and the new opportunities and jobs that comes from a, a decarbonising um, decarbonizing the economy. But the likes of Joel Fitzgibbon, who is a member for Hunter, which is a, a coal seat, and he, he lost a big, a big slice of his parliamentary, of his political advantage in his margin at the last election. So he and others are, you know, trying to, it's, it's almost like Anthony Albanese didn't make that speech. Yeah. <laughs> they keep ignoring that. Um, but, you know, that's really the, the, not just the issue that keeps, has to be addressed, but also both parties, if they, if they really mean it, if they really mean about trying to look after these coal mining um, communities, they have to put a lot of money behind it too. They have to have a plan. Let's bring in our guest, Fran. Let's do it. Andrew Proben is the ABC's political editor and our guest. Welcome to the party room. Thanks, PK. Hi, Fran. Hey, Andrew. Andrew, we've just been talking about the pressure on both sides of politics around climate change this week. And actually, my view is I think the pressure of the division is actually more intense within Labor on this issue right now. It's certainly more on show. But, you know, we're talking about changes to sides, the position of both sides. But in reality, when it comes to the crunch, has anything actually really changed significantly, particularly in terms of where the coalition is at on this issue? I think it was a significant week insofar as the the rhetoric and the language uh behind the coalition and used by the Prime Minister certainly hardened. As soon as he started talking about net zero uh, by 2050 as his preference, that was a significant moment. It means now that he has effectively surrendered to uh, the global pressure, the domestic pressure, the expectation that he's going to be doing it anyway. But this really is a matter of slowly convincing uh, the the detractors on climate policy, on energy policy. This the critics inside who are saying, "Don't go too hard." He really he's, he is boiling the frog here. He's boiling uh, the frog when it comes to those who say that uh, uh, Australia should not be um, ad ad uh, venturing too far or too far on this particular topic. And look, it's, uh, he, he knows also that when he gets an invitation from the, the US President Joe Biden to a potentially uh, come to a, a climate change uh, summit in Washington, perhaps as early as April, um, then he has to come with something on the table. And uh, that's what this is about. It's also about realising that um, the electorate is demanding something and expects the government to, to match this net zero by 2050, given that so many industries are already making that move. OK, so what does he do about the the dissidents? We've talked about them with Fran when we know who they are, that rump that's not happy, they're obviously going to fire up. Does he not care anymore? Is he going to carefully manage it? What's the deal there? I think he's going to carefully manage it by keeping his his language careful. He says uh, uh, he's turned this preference into also 
a, a political wedge against the opposition or potentially against the opposition saying that they will do this through technology and science, not through taxes. Uh, behind the scenes, the, the Prime Minister's backing saying that this language is actually very, very similar to the language being used by uh, the Biden administration. Now, Biden administrations uh, might even be pushing harder, but in the United States, remember, and even under Biden's plan, they'll be using nuclear. We don't have that option. But, Andrew, the, I mean, the Prime Minister's been careful, all right, to, far from going too far too fast. He's going very cautiously. If he wants to commit to 2050, why doesn't he just say it? It's a long way off. You know, it gives him plenty of room. Why doesn't he just make that commitment? Doesn't he risk looking, you know, wishy-washy here? I think that's coming. I think in, in a few months we'll see that he actually does uh, announce that that's the coalition mm. target. I think that's we've been. I think we've actually spoken about this mm. uh, previously. Yeah, but why doesn't he just I've... do it now? Why all this sort of tiptoeing there? Why doesn't he say that? I mean, the pressure will then come presumably on midterm targets, but that's going to come anyway at at Glasgow in November or in the United States in April, isn't it? Well, I, he doesn't do it because uh, we only have to look back a few months, a year ago, in fact. Michael McCormack was saying that uh, net zero by 2050 would, would be a ruination of industry, the closure of factories. So trying to marry that kind of presentation from some of his <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> major colleagues with this new direction is quite difficult. Michael McCormack, who was supporting this net zero by 2050 preference only two days ago, but, you know, Ten months ago, six months ago, he was vehemently against it. You know, the sands are shifting here. Scott Morrison knows that he has to drag the coalition towards this long-term mid-century target. And he is just going to try now and make this about what it costs, who pays, and it not being taxpayers as far as he's concerned, but, the, but technology and science. We'll talk about shifting stands. We've had shifting shadow ministers with Anthony Albanese doing that reshuffle, taking Mark Butler out of climate change, which seemed to be a bit of a sop to the right who'd been demanding it. How much is Labor's inability to keep these divisions around climate um, contributing to pressure on Anthony Albanese's leadership? And how much stock do you put on the reports that Albanese's leadership is in, is in trouble or, or close to being in trouble? Look, there's a, a lot of people grizzling behind the scenes, but um, they have no break in case of emergency candidate there. Uh, the person who is most talked about in Labour circles as someone who might have a, a good chance of of uh, uh, bringing trouble to Scott Morrison is Tanya Plibersek. Uh, the view is that Tanya Plibersek um, can, can use the fact that she is a woman to cause problems for Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison, who has had the woman problem in, in, a, in a personnel sense, in a connection sense. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. We're not there yet. We've there is a, a real despondency around Labor about the fact that really they're howling in a in, in a typhoon. The the government during this pandemic has almost consumed 
all of the oxygen. There's little left for labour. So squabbling over um, direction, uh, lack of policy, as you hear from mm. the labour types, it's not translating just yet into a, a bigger movement. That said, there are people who are insistent that there is a kind of Easter deadline for Anthony Albanese. But do you think he's aware of it? I think he is. Um, is he going <laughs> oh, to start? Yeah. <laughs> is, is he going to start uh, putting out more and more policy? I think you'll see that. I think you'll see something on industrial relations next week when he, he gives a speech in in Brisbane. So there are things happening. He he realizes now that he is in the the final quarter of potentially of this term, and he has to start shaping some greater imagery of himself and, and what the Labour Party stands for. But I, I, I don't see his leadership yet being at a, a critical point, and that is simply because there's no clear option. Uh, and uh, if it were to be Tanya Plibersek, I think it would, uh, it would have to be a change made closer to the election uh, and, and not, uh, not much before it. Look, you mentioned Tanya Plibersek as that kind of, you know, potential alternative also of the left. She, of course, uh, was very instrumental this week in kind of really delivering some kind of action on a particular backbencher who is a bit of a problem for the government, I think that's fair to say, Craig Kelly, who's been spending a lot of time with conspiracy theories on coronavirus and putting all sorts of misinformation out there. He's been doing it for a long time, right, particularly over the last month. Um, and the, the PM's been under all of this pressure to rebuke him, to to actually denounce him, to, to say that it's wrong. He's been using a form of words, as have his MPs. It's like this, the script, which is, you know, go to your doctor for advice rather than actually criticising him. But something changed this week, um, Andrew Proben. Why did it change and is it too late? Uh, I don't think it's too late. Uh, I think it changed this week because he suddenly saw that Craig Kelly's uh, musings his um, promotion had gone from the backwater of the online world onto the front page and into the uh, into prime time and that was the real problem for Scott Morrison he has a, a backbencher whose um, prominence has grown in recent weeks because he has become this great irritant he is the media do go for the, for the conflict and potentially the idiocy uh, that uh, is in this space and he had to nip this in the bud. Now, why hasn't he gone harder? He hasn't gone harder because um, the coalition, as we know, is in 77 seats. Um, 76 uh, gives you the majority. If uh, if someone like Craig Kelly were to move to the crossbench, as he, last, uh, as he threatened in the last parliament, he could cause some pain. So that, do you I think, think it's, it's just a matter it's, of arithmetic? Because I was, I was struck that the Prime Minister didn't take the chance on Monday to really um, hit Craig Kelly for six, so to speak, you know, that, that question. And instead he said he's doing a great job in Hughes when you know, there's plenty of evidence that he's mm. not doing such a great job in Hughes. And, you know, he, he's moved out from the backwater of the internet for a while now. He's regularly on Sky. He, he's been out there. In the very week we're spending taxpayers' money to launch the vaccine campaign, mm. you know, he's, do, he's doing interviews and podcasts saying things Silly that the government that, that yeah. goes against the government. Government policy. 
Well, it's not just against the government policy. It's against economic recovery. If you're looking at the anti-vaxxer movement and also the vaccine hesitancy, you're talking about uh, quite a big chunk of of society. The experts believe and our our medical uh, officials believe that there is about a two to three percent of the population are anti-vaxxers. More worrying for them is that there's about 20% who are vaccine hesitant. Now, we all have had, no doubt, had conversations with our friends and family. And it strikes me as interesting that you do come across people uh, who are hesitant about the vaccine for various reasons, either because it's been developed so fast or because, well, we've got not, we haven't got COVID in Australia here. And this is the real problem because the key to economic recovery will be trying to get this vaccine to 70, 80% of the population at least. I and think it's even it, higher than that. I mean, I think, I think the government knows that for this to work, for us to be able to, you know, open the borders again, get the economy open again, they're going to need very high levels of of vaccination over 90% they're going to need the vaccine itself to be effective um, and the rollout to go effectively they need everything going right on this for it to actually you know give the close to herd, Im- herd immunity we need to to get things opened up again oh they would love to get 90 90 mm. plus uh, now you know they really want to get 94 95 percent uh, yeah. don't they but i mean if you've got this hesitancy which is is quite it's there. Uh, it's in the. Have you guys spoken to of people? Course, who of are course, of course. And uh, you know, and I, we all try it to. It surprises me. You know, look, I just think that that's a sort of that that questioning part of the community, and also. You know, people go by anecdotes. So they'll say it takes vaccines years to develop. And, you know, you've got to be armed with facts. And I'll always say, yeah, because we don't usually invest so much mm. in their development well, so a, quickly. It, it, that's actually a really good um, aspect of this whole debate. Now, one of the reasons why we've come up with these uh, vaccines so quickly is not just investment, but also the fact that there's been this global effort to build the vaccine profile, which would which can then be retrofitted mm. for all of the, the latest uh, uh, viruses or viruses that we expect to become, you know, the winter's flu. That's how it happens year in, year out. So we have got this platform uh, that has allowed this fast development, remarkably fast development of of vaccines. But it's people uh, like Craig Kelly who simply say that, uh, you know, he's he's gently probing the, uh, the information that's been put before us, but he is actually fanning the flames of the anti-vaxxer movement and uh, the the silly nonsense that you get whereby hydrochloroquine, something that I took actually as a kid when we were living in Africa to prevent malaria, uh, there have been supply problems for that very important drug because people have been Mm. listening to this garbage Mm. when the science say it's ineffective and will be ineffective on on COVID-19. Look, a lot of coalition MPs are concerned about Craig Kelly undermining public confidence in the vaccine rollout. You know, they were previously sort of saying he's just just a voice... Well, no, he's an MP. He has a platform. He's funded by taxpayers. He, he's accountable, I think, to a new level. And, and now they're able to maybe say that like much more because the PM's taken action. I spoke to Liberal MP Katie Allen on RN Drive, who said she actually confronted him in the party room. Here she is. 
Taking a medication that's unproven might harm one person, uh, but being um, told at the public health level about a vaccination being good or not can have harmful effects. So I wanted to know, was he with us or against us? And he told me in the party room he was with us. And that was very reassuring for me. Yeah, let's see if he's going to continue to stay, um, uh, you know, sticking to the facts. I'm, I'm not convinced given his past form, but, you know, that's yet to be seen. I want to know this, though, from you, Andrew Proben. Craig Kelly was saved from pre-selection challenges before the 2016 and the 2019 elections. There are reports the Prime Minister won't intervene this time. Is this kind of, is this, is this the sort of straw that broke the camel's back for him? I think it is. I, I, I don't think he, will, he he won't be saved this time around. Um, there is already talk inside liberal circles about him being a bit of a misfit because it, it's uh, in terms of the uh, the liberal spectrum hues. His seat is supposedly, according to the liberals, more of the moderate side. Um, so th- there's that that kind of aspect to it that he will be uh, challenged. People are expecting there, there to be a challenge and that he, he will not be saved by the Prime Minister. The last time he was saved, he was threatening to go on the crossbench, as I, I said before, but mm. they were also dealing with a mere 76-seat uh, parliament. And um, that was very tricky, especially given that uh, Malcolm Turnbull had, had just walked um, from from Parliament, so there are, there is a certain circumstance last time that's not matched here. We also can see that uh, Kevin Andrews, for example, he he, he a letter was written on on his behalf uh, by the Prime Minister. Kevin Andrews also had the support of uh, Tony Abbott and John ha- Howard, but uh, he's fallen at the hands of pre-selectors too. So. I think you can expect that uh, Craig Kelly will, will no longer be with us. Uh, either uh, it's a, a seat taken by another party, or uh, it's taken by someone else in the in the Liberal Party itself. Probes, it's great to kick off the party room year with you as a friend of the party room. Thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be a big year, I think. Thanks, guys. See ya. Now, before we go, just a reminder that we are here to try to answer your questions. I say try because, yeah, I don't want to overreg it. We'll try. <laughs> uh, about politics and how, you know, the parliament functions, policy, all of that stuff. And we love getting your questions. We do. This question time slot, we love it. If there's something you've been dying to know, hit us up. Just try us out. You can tweet us using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au. I've got to say, Fran, I love hanging out with you again. I'm looking forward to doing this every week. It's great to be back. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.